Welcome to Thrivers, nonprofit leadership for the next normal. I'm your host, Tucker Wanamaker, the CEO of Thrive Impact, and our mission is to solve nonprofit leader burnout. Burnout is the enemy of creating positive change, and we want to connect you with impactful mission-driven leaders and ideas so that you can learn to thrive in today's nonprofit landscape. And today, I am joined, as usual, by my co-host, Sarah Fanslau, our Chief of Impact. Hey, Sarah. Good to be here with you today. Hey, Tucker. Great to be here. On the show. And I'm also joined by a wonderful guest of somebody that we've been working with for a little while now on a particular project that we're going to talk about, uh, Mr. Dr. Dan Diamond. Dan, it is great to have you here on the show. Thanks, Tucker. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited about the work you're doing. Well, Dan, tell us a little bit about your background, really for, I know a lot about your background, but for our listeners, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and then we'll talk about, um, we really want to get into things like well-being, what we've been learning through this journey that we've all been working on uh, with a a group of impact-driven leaders in healthcare. Um, So we want to get into that. But before we do, Dan, tell us a little bit about you. Like, who are you, Dr. Dan Diamond? That's, that's a, I mean, other than being your friend, <laughs> which <laughs> yes, is a great thing. Which I love, which I'm I love. A, I'm a family practice doc, and I've been doing international disaster medicine throughout my career. I ran the medical triage unit at the New Orleans Convention Center. I led first teams into Haiti, the Philippines, Honduras, Mexico, Africa, India. I've been all over the place working in high-pressure, high-stakes environments where the work matters. So um, one of the reasons I enjoy spending time with you and I'm excited to be on the podcast is I have a passion for nonprofit leaders and I understand that world really, really well. That's awesome. I love that, Dan. Well, and some other uh, accolades, you've received something from President Obama. Is that correct? Yeah, it was the Volunteer Service Award. Yeah. Yes. So as we like to say at high at Thrive Impact, high thrive, Dr. Yeah. Dan. High thrive. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. Well, today we want to talk about in some ways thriving, right? We, it's literally in our name. Dan, I know that this is a lot of your work too, is around how do you help organizations and leaders and teams to thrive? And uh, and particularly around a topic that has to do with well-being. It's a it's a word that gets I would say tossed around quite a bit around people's well-being. Some people don't know whether we put a hyphen in between well and being, or we just have it as one word. That's always a little fun thing that we always wrestle around with. But Sarah and Dan, both of you, I'm curious from a well-being perspective, what are, what are we really talking about when we're talking about the well-being of our people, our employees, our team? From your perspective or from what you know from research and data, what are we really talking about when it means when we say well-being? Sarah, you want to go first? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a great question, Tucker. I think, you know, many people are probably going to know um, the work of uh, Dr. Martin Seligman, who really is in many ways the father of well-being and came up with you know, the first model, really one of the first models to help people think about this piece. Um, And he really developed PERMA, which is kind of five core pieces or building blocks or antecedents that are really important 
to support well-being. I think folks get tripped up on thinking well-being is such a huge concept. It's so multifaceted, and it is. Like it's not a single thing. It's not happiness, for example, right? And so those building blocks are really positive emotions, engagement, positive relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And now people have built on that from there, but I think that is kind of the baseline of what we think of, or many people think of when they think of what is well-being. Dr. Dan, what do you think? What is it to you? It, to me, it's, it's people coming to work and being able to bring their whole self, their enthusiasm, their joy, their energy, uh, it's a vibrance that people bring to the workplace. And in the nonprofit world, that's really important because a lot of the nonprofit organizations that I'm working with are trying to get great work done with skinny resources. Yep. And so if your team is depleted and they're showing up and they're like, yeah, I'm just here for the paycheck, that doesn't work. You need people that are willing to come in with some enthusiasm and lean into the work and say, yeah, I'm here, man. I'm part of this. I can't wait to be part of this. Mm -hmm. uh, so... How can I, you know, as, as a family doc, I'm looking at it going, how can people show up at work and be really fit emotionally, physically, spiritually, um, so that they're able to make an impact? So the energy goes out from them and they're not showing up and sucking the energy out of everybody else. Mm -hmm. I like Marty Seligman's stuff. I think he, he, talking about positive emotions is important and engagement is important. Relationships are important. Meaning at work is a p important in a sense of accomplishment. And, you know, our friend Michelle McQuaid tacked the H on the end for health. Yeah. Yep. It's such, when we start looking at those ingredients, it's really what it takes to bring your people alive and I say you're people, but maybe it's you too. Right. <laughs> All of the people. Yeah, exactly. All of us. You know, it's interesting to hear, uh, you know, both of you from your the perspectives or some of the research that's there around PERMA plus H. Dana, like, thank you for bringing in the H. Um, positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, accomplishment, and health. And, you know, Dan, you were kind of hitting on something that was like, there's this space of well-being that's more of a, a looking at this from a whole human perspective. And yet I, I do feel like in our world and in our work, and we'll talk a little bit about what we learned in a process that we did with this uh, impact-driven organization in healthcare. Um, but there's something about like we've created many times these di or these uh, bifurcations almost of like our professional life and our personal life. And, and I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. I just, it's something I've noticed. And I'm curious, what does well-being mean when it comes to the whole human? What does that mean? Like, does that mean we have to like let people know about our personal lives now? Is that, are there, are there struggles here with what we've come from around our professional selves versus our other selves uh, of us trying to figure out well-being like is it is it certainly does it feel like it's getting too personal now with well-being do some people want to butt up against that because that's not as professional i don't know i'm curious your thoughts and reflections on uh, on well-being when it comes to both personal and professional or maybe this holistic view of humans if if i'm leading a team into one of these disaster zones 
and I'm not saying all nonprofits are in disaster zones, but when when I'm working in a disaster zone, if I care about my team as people, it makes it so much better. You know, and, and I've learned to just drop my guard at the beginning and say, hey, I'm going to make at least three major mistakes in this deployment. I'd appreciate it if you'd tell me before I blow my leg off, if you see me about to do something. So instead of showing up with, well, I'm the team leader, you know, I'm the director and you need to do what I say and I know everything, um, I'd rather show up and say, I'm going to make some mistakes and Let's be real with each other. Let's support each other. I don't expect people on my team to expose all their rawness. And it's interesting because when we get deployed, we meet at the airport. Mm. There's a big roster and we're randomly picked from the who can go because it's like they hit the eject button and we got to go within 24 hours. Um, so it's, you know, can I arrange coverage and all this stuff? And then whoever meets at the at the airport it's, hi, I'm Dan. You know, that's really how it starts. So I think it's, as a leader, we have the opportunity to drop our guard and say, I invite you into this conversation. And it's, I think, helpful to let people know that it's a safe place to talk about stuff if they want to, but I'm not going to tie my team to a chair and say, tell me about your personal life. Have you ever been in a <laughs> tough relationship? I need to know. But I want to create great. a safe environment where if they need to share, they can. Yeah, that's great, Dan. Love that perspective. Sarah, curious, your your reflections and even lived experience around this topic. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, our the R in PERMA is relationships, right? And that's about connecting with others, loving and being loved. And I think, Dr. Dan, that's what you just talked about. You know, like whether you're at work or you're at home, we are rarely somewhere. Um, I mean, some of us are somewhere just because we have to be, and I don't want to downplay that. Um, and even when that's true, I think there's a difference between being there because you have to and being there because um, you want to be. And relationships are an important part of that, all of the research suggest that. And so I think, you know, in this um, intervention that we just finished, one of the things that we saw in the data coming out, and I know we're going to speak to this in a minute, but it was the connecting with others that came out as the thing people like the most. And this is not unique to this intervention. Everything we do, every time we measure it, that's what comes up for people yeah. because they find meaning in it. They find purpose in it and they improve their relationships, which means positive emotions go up. I think that's the thing about permits. They're not separate blocks, right? They're very interconnected. So when yeah. you're improving relationships, you're often also increasing positive emotions, which might help increase your engagement, right? All of those pieces fit mm. together. Mm, that's yeah, it almost of... feels like the R should be a little bit bigger. I agree. Than, yeah. the, than the others, <laughs> yeah. they could they could have Seligman could have started it with the letter R, but it would have it just would have been right. hard to pronounce. <laughs> It'd be Repma. And I was going to say, what is it? <laughs> Repma. That's yeah. a little strange. Um, well, I'm curious if we talk about some of the pains or issues, though. Like, what are when it comes to well-being? I mean, we are we've. I mean, you can listen to this podcast and you can hear a lot of the pains and issues around uh, nonprofit leaders. I mean, hence what I mentioned as our, as, as our mission, which is solving, solving nonprofit leader burnout and some of the other things that we do. 
But I'm curious, just from y'all's perspective, uh, what are these pains or issues that these, you know, impact-driven leaders are experiencing regarding well-being, understanding well-being, maybe even assessing of well-being? What are some of the things that you're noticing are going on? Well, I think it depends on, yeah, it depends on the leader. <laughs> There's some leaders that are like, I don't want to get into this work-life balance stuff because, you know, like I mentioned, this demands resources balance in the nonprofit world. Oftentimes, the demands are really high and the resources are really skinny. We don't have time to get into this well-being well, stuff. I mean, how do, you, how do you do it and still have the time to do the mission that we're on of our organization? Um, but I would in, encourage people to think about if we don't take care of our people, they're not going to stick around. And that gets to be really expensive. So that, that the question of is focusing on well-being worth it, what's it cost to address it? I think the flip question of what's it cost if you don't address well-being is a potentially powerful one, especially in the nonprofit world. So um, I think it's something that we, we need to talk about and we need to talk to our, our the people on our team about and have a have a game plan for how we're going to measure it and how what we're going to do as as an organization to move that that forward and make a difference so that people when when well-being is facilitated and tended like a garden in an organization then people start getting connected at the heart and it's not, they're really hard to recruit away from your organization when they say, no, these are my people. I don't care what you pay me. I'm not leaving. These are my people. I belong here. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the big question I'm asking is how do we create that type of an environment in a nonprofit setting and still get the work done? Mm. Or yeah. so we can get the work done. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think you all mentioned PERMA and then H, you know, recently there's been an addition of three other elements, um, mindset, environment, and economic security. And this is called PERMA plus four. And this is specific to the workplace well-being conversation, because I think part of what folks found as they were going out and doing research is that um, there's a really important systems level piece here that we can't ignore, right? It's not just about asking individuals to, you know, have better relationships or, you know, think positively. There are real environmental factors that are important. And economic security is literally about what you're paid, right? So I think um, really important when we're talking about well-being that there's both individual and systemic factors, and, you know, one meta review recently of um, workplace well-being studies found that something like, you know, there were 30 really well done studies and two of them were focused at the system level and the other 28 were at the individual level. Mm. And that's because it's easier to do. It's easier to focus on individual well-being and harder to focus on system level well-being. But that doesn't mean it's not important. And this is where, in particular, I think the nonprofit conversation comes in because we know from some of our data that foundations aren't supporting, uh, you know, overhead in the way people need. And so it becomes this starvation cycle where often nonprofits 
don't have enough funds or aren't putting funds aside to support this work um, at the system and at the individual level, and it becomes a real crisis. Well, and to both of your points, I'm curious, Dan, you asked, uh, I love the question of flipping the, the uh, what is the cost of not putting attention towards this and really getting clear about that? What do you both see is the cost as best as we can? I know there's data out there and we may have some ready, ready in our heads or at our fingertips or we may not have it all, but <laughs> what is the cost of not putting attention towards this? For I mean, from kids. a dollar's perspective, it's usually something like two and a half times their annual salary to recruit and train somebody new to come in. But I also think there's a lack of productivity. I mean, I have worked with people in healthcare that have said out loud the following sentence I'm just here for the paycheck. And I'm thinking, Man, you know, it's like, really? Because we need you to lean in and help take care of these patients and show up with a great attitude and welcome people and help them feel loved when they're here. And, and you're just here for the paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think what, what we're talking about is how do you move people up to become invested in the work? And then how do we get them to take ownership in the work, which is not going to happen if they're burned out. So well-being is, I think it's crucial. Sometimes it costs more to have people on the team that are burned out and they're just for the paycheck than it does if they'd quit and you had to hire somebody new. So, um, you know, when you have to hire additional people because the people that are there are not doing the work that they need to do, it gets really expensive really fast. Mm. Yeah, we have what is some data point that it says what like a, a disengaged employee is, you know, like every three thousand of ten thousand dollars of their salary is, you know, basically wasted because of yeah their disengagement. Like you um, might as well just throw it in the trash. <laughs> which I think is interesting. And and Dr. Dan, I know you have a bunch of data. Michelle McQuaid's Wellbeing Lab produces a bunch of great research on some of these consequences of well-being at work. But, you know, some of them we know, low turnover intentions. Dr. Jens just talked about that. Being proactive at work, both at the individual team and organization level. Being adaptive. uh, Reporting less stress from the job. More satisfaction. And then this piece, which I think speaks to what you're just talking about, is better organizational citizens, right? We're not just there to do what we have to do. We're there to do what the organization needs us to do in support of the positive change we want to make. Um, and so it's really important, right? All of these factors are what we want to see in the folks coming in to work at our organizations. Yeah. You almost cut sick days in half. It's so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, huh? Well, wow. let's pull it. Let's pull in this data. Cause I asked the, of course, the pain question, cause Dan, you asked it and I love that question and it's helpful for anybody listening to be thinking, oh, what is the cost of me not doing something about well-being and being explicit about that and really understanding the cost that this has for you and your organization. But what does the data, and I know this comes out of the Michelle McQuaid's work um, at the well-being lab of why well-being does matter. And, you know, some of the, some of the data um, that hits on it directly is people are, more likely to feel engaged 
Six times more. Six likely times. To sorry, be not six percent. Six times yeah, more six likely. Times. Twenty nine percent more likely to be more productive. Forty five percent more likely to be satisfied in their jobs. Forty six percent less likely to experience unhealthy days. One hundred and twenty five percent less likely to burn out, which leads to disengagement and leads to all those things that we just talked about. And 32% less likely to quit. Those are some pretty good stats. Yeah. 125% less likely to burn out. Healthcare's got a huge problem on, on burnout right now. Yeah. yeah. And so does nonprofit. Well, and then Dan hit on some of this data that she says, and we'll, by the way, we'll put this in the show notes so you can see uh, the link to this, these exact stats that come again from Michelle McQuaid. But there's this, there's this whole bottom section, Dan, that speaks to workplaces that invest in employee well-being experience on average blank. Tell us, Dan, just hit on that for just a minute, what you, what the data says. 70% fewer safety incidents, which makes great sense to me because if you're exhausted and you're not feeling good and you're walking around with your head down, you walk into stuff and get hurt. (laughs) 41% less absenteeism, somewhere between 24 and 59% less turnover. That's a big one. That's huge. That's a really expensive one that we just talked about. They're three and a half times more likely to be seen as creative and innovative. Mm. And and wow, when, when we get deployed, we're all about improv. You know, we're trying to figure out, okay, the hospital is now a pile of rocks over there. What are we going to do to set up a field hospital? What's that going to look like? We, I, I need people that are going to be innovative and creative and not ones that go, oh, now what are we going to do? <laughs> um, 10% higher consumer ratings or customer ratings. And um, this is an interesting one that I don't know that this applies to the nonprofit world, but 10% higher over average shareholder return. Mm. Which does hit into, I mean, we've said this many times on the podcast, nonprofit is a tax status, not a business model. And that nonprofits yeah, no need profit. Me. It's just that the profit doesn't go to shareholders. So what I, it just goes back to the mission. So what I hear in this is that they're essentially 10% more profitable in a sense, uh, yeah. a way of thinking about it, which nonprofits need to be profitable. It just doesn't go mm-hmm. to shareholders. So it speaks directly to uh, what nonprofits do need to be putting some attention towards. Well, so uh, Sarah, curious if you had any thoughts that you wanted to add into just hearing some of that data. You obviously knew a lot of that and have seen a lot of this in your own data work because you are our, our data person at Thrive Impact, and I'm so grateful for it. Anything else that you wanted to add in there, Sarah, in terms of what you've seen uh, in your own work in your master's degree right now or other other places? Um, I mean, I think we primarily covered it. The only point I'd make is that, you know, there are consequences or associations with well-being that uh, are also personal and outside of the workplace, right? And, you know, um, fulfilling and satisfying social lives outside of the workplace is a um, antecedent of increased well-being. Performing better at school, achieving higher levels of academic success. These are things research has found and studies have found that can happen as a result of increasing personal well-being, earning more income, and generating more wealth across careers. So just to say that workplace well-being is not just about the workplace, right? It's really about each of us individually, and it has impacts and consequences in our personal life and in our professional life. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Sarah, for bringing that in. 
Well, I've, you know, I've seen that before we move on, Tucker, I've seen that so many times in healthcare. Um, mm. If, if we have somebody on the team that's not doing well, it impacts the entire team. There's this ripple effect and how I show up matters, how the other people on my team show up matters. Um, if I'm having a bad day, have I created psychological safety with my team so that they can support me when I'm having a bad day so it doesn't ripple out as much, but they're actually rippling into me. Mm. So I think there's this, we can look at well-being from the individual perspective, from the team perspective, and then from the organizational perspective. And we can go one step beyond and say, what's the well-being like of the people that we serve? So mm. if we're looking at the, the people that we serve, if I'm not well, the impact that I can have on the well-being of the people I'm serving is decreased. There's still some. I mean, if you, if you have a broken leg, I could still put a cast on your leg and make you better, but it's, it's different than if I'm well and I'm taking care of you. Mm. You'll feel that differently and it'll be a different mm. experience. Yeah. Just to wrap up this part and what you were just sharing, Dan, there was a, a wonderful quote uh, out of Dr. Daniel Friedland's book. We've referenced him a lot of times, Dan. I know that he was a dear friend of yours as well. He wrote yeah. Leading Well from Within, a neuroscience and mindfulness-based framework for conscious leadership. And his research was very clearly showing, he said, burnout, and if you think about the word burnout, think about that of not having well-being. Maybe, I don't know if that's a fair exact comparison, but close enough for this purpose. Uh, burnout is not only debilitating for the leader, but the leader's stress and reactivity can ripple through in an, organ an organization eroding the culture and significantly impacting employee engagement, impact, and revenue growth. So just hitting on that, that quote that comes out of Dr. Danny's uh, research that, yeah, a ripple effect is real. Yeah. Not just from the leader, but anybody within the organization, the ripple effects where we are affects how others are. Um, and that's a really important point. So appreciate you bringing that in, Dan. Uh, briefly, I want to go over, we, so we, uh, we've been talking about this. We've been working with an organization of impact-driven leaders um, uh, in healthcare, and uh, they work with kids primarily, and uh, they wanted to bring us in to help support them on well-being, quite literally. They wanted to improve the well-being of their pediatricians, of their administrators, of uh, their medical assistants of all these people that are within the organization. Um, and they wanted to create some space for us to be able to do that and for them to not ha have the pressure of patients coming in all the time and they carved out real space, which I want to applaud them for doing that because you know, I think when they had done stuff like this before, it was kind of on weekends and it was after hours and things like that. But they, you know, I think I just want to appreciate them for saying, no, we need to put a line in the sand and say, this is important. Mm -hmm. To the point of, you know, we're not going to have patients come in and we're going to make sure that we can help improve the well-being. So I wanted to speak very briefly, maybe in the next 10 minutes to both um, the program model in terms of what we learned and as well as what we learned from it. Uh, some of the things that we felt like uh, from our perspective, Dan, that we saw were effective. And then Sarah, you really dug into the data, um, you know, especially we did a in survey of what people were sharing 
and and also you dug into a little bit of the perma side as well so and we can all just share a little bit about what this program was and what we did and particularly i'm curious uh, as we share about it what can a nonprofit leader or impact driven leader do I mean, one, they could, you know, hire us to come and support them, but there's also things that we did that they can do too, right? That, that um, while we are, of course, professionals in this work, a lot of the things that we did, were actually just teaching people a rhythm that they can now do themselves. And so I want to make sure we hit on some of those pieces, especially for our listeners, uh, for, for them to be thinking about uh, from a program model perspective. So um, Dan, I'm curious, just at a high level, what did go over the program model briefly of what we, what we went through with them? And, uh, and then we'll go from there. I'd like to start with what it was not. <laughs> because I think all too often um, programs like this, it's the executive team going away for a weekend and talking about the, strate- the strategy we're going to put in place to deal with well-being. They come back and they say to the frontline people, hey, we had a great strategic retreat. We care about your wellness. Here's what we're going to do. We got these three main initiatives that we're going to do. Who wants to be on the committee? Oh, and by the way, it's a voluntary voluntary thing. You don't get paid for it, and it's actually not voluntary. And the old the old guard that's been working there for a while whispers to the young guard, you know, don't raise your hand. Don't make eye contact because <laughs> this goes away. Just give them a couple of weeks, and they'll forget about it. Been there. This was yeah. not that. <laughs> we We intentionally – invited the voices of the entire team into this experience. So it didn't, it didn't really make any difference if you were a doc or a nurse or a medical assistant or the front office receptionist or the administrator. Everybody was, in, was invited in to the conversation where we started talking about how do we create a life-giving culture? What does that look like? So that was, that was the foundation of where we started with was let's create psychological safety. And we did some very specific things to do that. How do we connect people? How do we bring all the voices into this conversation so everybody owns it? So that was, that was the foundation that we started with. I love that. <laughs> I think that is a helpful perspective of good old fashioned top-down leadership approaches to well-being that actually probably go against well-being altogether. In fact, yeah, make it yeah, even no worse, kidding. right? Yeah, that's great. So so what did we do with them, Dan? We, we had a six-month program. Uh, it was once a month. We would meet with, the, uh, there was two different clinics that were part of this. And everybody from within the clinics were part of it. And yep. we would meet for them. We, I think we kicked it off with a, was it a two-hour experience? And then we did 90-minute experiences once a month after that. And then we ended it with a celebration. So we really had seven experiences, um, all roughly 90 minutes in, in length, except for the first one. Um, and, and we had a team of champions. And we also had a team of champions, yeah, which we met with for 30 minutes uh, on the sort of off by weeks, in a sense. Mm-hmm. So that way, we were doing that as a way of really getting a pulse check of like, what are you noticing? What are you seeing? What's happening? Um, hey, here are some... We actually were we were trying to co-create with the clinics themselves, and particularly with these champions, um, so that way you know we can get a sense of hey, what's resonating, what's hitting, what's 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 uh, what's not actually for that matter. So, for example, one of the times, um, I think this is about the third month in, 
uh, we met with the champions and, you know, we had done a couple of experiences that were what we call a rapid five eye. But what that really means is uh, a real rapid brainstorming around uh, specific areas around how might we increase positive emotions. And because we used PERMA, we did we did a PERMA plus H assessment through Michelle McQuaid's work um, at the Wellbeing Lab. We use that as an assessment to be able to help people get a sense of where they were when it came to these different factors, the PERMA factors. And what were the areas that they wanted to spend some time uh, working towards? They specifically mentioned um, positive emotions was one of them. And I think health was one of the other ones. Yeah. And, and so we did a rapid uh, brainstorming time of helping to come up with very specific, very uh, clear ideas for them to be able to try. We tried to open up the space of what might be safe to try. What is something that is worthwhile to lean in and give it a go, right? Yeah. Design sprints with a prototype. Yeah. Design sprint. Exactly. Design sprints. So quick questions, quick ideas, first and best thoughts uh, with a prototype that by prototype, we mean uh, people put down different steps, different thoughts, different ways of doing it, and then said, okay, now who might have the energy around doing it? So we invited their their own energy and some people raised their hand for sure. And we're like, hey, let's do this. Um, so that was one of the program factors was rapid design sprints in the room with all the voices involved. And it wasn't just the leaders that raised their hands. It was some of the, on the org chart, some of the people were at the bottom of the org chart and some of the people were at the top of the org chart when, when we said, who wants to take the lead on this? Who wants to take the ownership? So. Mm-hmm. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was, and inviting people's energy, impressive. like, hey, here yeah. are some options, or here's here are some of the things that we want to move forward on. Who has energy around that? Yeah. And literally, I mean, when, when you invite people's energy, people have energy towards what they get to create. Uh, we've said that many times. That comes from uh, my friend John Berghoff, dear mentor of both of ours and all of ours really on this call, um, of helping to you know increase these types of things. But then we worked with the champions uh, to get a sense of, hey, would it be helpful for us to do another one of those? Or what if we went down into doing some deeper training and we slowed it down on the third one, I remember very clearly, mm-hmm. uh, to do some of the work that we do around conscious leadership and teaching and training uh, of Dr. Daniel Friedland's work. Um, and helping people, going back to Sarah, what you said earlier around what the data said, around what was most supportive creating even bigger spaces for people to connect with one another by also inviting them into some training around reactivity versus creativity and leadership. And I remember we asked the question, we love this question, which is after we trained on some of the concepts, where is reactivity creating more harm than good in your life? And what is it costing you? Almost kind of like the question you were asking earlier, like what is it costing you to not focus on well-being? We asked, in a sense, asked people the same question, but on an individual basis, where is reactivity creating or causing more harm than good in your life? And what is it costing you? And what is it costing your family? And what is it costing your team? And what is it costing those you're serving? And then the second question was one around um, a year from today, what do you want to be celebrating about your own personal transformation? as a conscious leader in this particular area. So uh, that was one thing that we co-created with this champions, uh, with these champions. Um, but I wanted to give those questions that 
that that really created a while the the design sprints were really helpful and i think people spoke to that in the data um the space to have more more and deeper conversations around deeper questions but also generative questions was really meaningful for the staff people that were that were on yeah one of the sessions that we did that i thought was we in our initial design when we were planning this six-month journey we didn't have it on the radar, but the champions, when we met with them, said, hey, it would really be helpful if we could have a, a session to talk about how might we as a clinic thrive during flu season. Because flu season uh, in a pediatrics office, oof, it could be challenging. It could be a bit rough. So, um, it, yeah. and it was, again, it was such a refreshing experience to watch them come together as a team. The org chart was set aside and we flattened the organization. They flattened the organization and they they created this opportunity for people to bring their voices in and they came up with some very creative and practical ideas that I don't think we could have come up with because we didn't know the nuts and bolts of how their office works. So it, it's a different feel than saying, Hi, my name is Dan Diamond. I wrote a book called Beyond Resilience, Trench-Tested Tools to Thrive Under Pressure. If you just read my book, you'll be fine. That really doesn't work as well as saying, <laughs> what's your biggest need? And how can we come together and crowdsource and co-create a meaningful strategy and create a prototype? Let's try some stuff. Let's experiment. Yeah, well, and I think one of the interesting things for me, you know, y'all did these great workshops and then you met with the champions, but then people mm -hmm. were left to bring this back, right? Yeah. They were left to bring it back. And in some ways, we weren't quite totally sure of the ideas they co-created, what they had brought back. But in the survey, you know, 85% of individuals noted that they had implemented the things that they had co-created in the workshops in oh, their wow. real life, which, you know, is a huge amount. I mean, to be honest, one of the things I was curious about is like, does this intervention need more support at the ground level to make sure that things coming out of the workshop are really going into people's lives? But for the most part, people took them and brought them in. Wow. Which I, didn't even I think speaks wow. to, yeah, yeah. It's amazing, honestly. Yeah. People took it and they did it, which also says something about you know, when you, when it's your own idea, but also when it's easy enough to do, you can go ahead and do that. And I think some of the ideas and y'all will know better than me, but literally adding like small connecting questions to the morning huddle, right. Instead of just going right into patient care and what we need to do that day saying, how was your weekend? What did you do? <laughs> Which doesn't sound like rocket science, maybe until you start doing it. And then you realize what yeah, it but feels you know, like. It doesn't right? work. It, so, what doesn't work is for me wild. to show up as a consultant and say, what you need to do is morning huddles. <laughs> and then everybody stands around and they're kicking their <laughs> shoes and they're looking down and going, this is stupid. Yeah. These huddles are stupid. I got like, so much oh, to God, work. What do I have to do? Why do I have to do yeah. these dumb huddles? It was their idea that they came up with. They owned it. They implemented it. And it was it was fun to hear their comments. I didn't know that my doctors were actually people. Yes, you know? Seriously. It's like, wow, you guys were really connecting. Yeah, like we connected, we talked about what you do on the weekend. Yeah. You? And it just sounds like such simple stuff, but you know, do you want to belong to an organization where our people feel loved? 
I guess that's the big question. Can you say the word love on your podcast? Well, (laughs) (laughs) not the L word. Yeah, of course you can. Well, and that was the significant feedback that I felt like I heard right off the bat from the champions, even after the first experience, they started, they kept saying over and over again, this place feels more human. Like that was the sentiment that they kept hitting on. I feel like I'm getting to know people more, right? Going back to that capital R relationships in PERMA, right? That we were talking about earlier. That's the feedback we were getting um, from the champions themselves. Sarah, I'm curious if you happen to notice if there's anything in the data. And I guess you kind of were hitting on that, which is the number one factor involved. What was it around around the program? What The number one thing that people said was the highest value was connecting with one another. Is that right? It was, there were two. One was sharing wins in progress, which I think speaks to, you know, that research from Brene Brown and a lot of other folks that it gets you out of scarcity when you reflect on your wins and your progress. And so that was the first. Um, And then the second was connecting with colleagues. Uh, And so 74% of our survey respondents said that sharing wins in progress had a high value and um, and then another 18.5% said it had a medium value. So really the majority of people are saying this is really important to me. And then yeah. connecting with colleagues was next. Yeah. Well, oh, thank you for bringing that in, Sarah, because that was another one of the factors that we did. We started to get into a rhythm. I think it was on the second month. Uh, we started the process of basically it's a, it's, a, it's a rhythm that all of you who are listening can get into with your own teams, which is where over the last month and because we were doing monthly cadence we did it based on the last month but if you have a weekly check-in or whatever you can do that on a weekly basis which was uh where did you see any wins or progress around the particular you know either the perma surveys but we really were asking around your own leadership and your own well-being where have you seen a win or progress in yourself and we also asked where have you seen a win or progress in your clinic and inviting them to pause, to reflect on the last month. We gave them probably a good solid minute to think about this and then go in to share with each other in a small group, in a breakout. Uh, we did all this on Zoom, by the way. And uh, and then make sure everybody gets a chance to share if they choose to. And then come back out and hear some of the share outs and some of the themes or the commonalities. And, and that was literally a, a staple of every single experience from the second one all the way through the seventh one. And... Um, and so we were trying to teach a rhythm, and that's again what all of you listeners can be doing. That is based on Sarah, what Sarah was saying around some research that Brene Brown had. That when we reflect on our wins and our progress, even in small uh, or big ways, it doesn't matter. And we would say things like, "Hey, did anybody bring your measuring tape today?" No, nobody really did, because we're not measuring whether or not your win is a good win or a bad win or a big win or a small win. That's not the point. The point is for you to reflect on where you've made a win or had some progress and to let others celebrate you and what you believe is a progress for you. Um, and it was, uh, Sarah, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this data forward because that was one thing we we really honed in on and wanted to make sure was a part uh, of the rhythm. And it sounds like it was really supportive for people. You know, I think one of the numbers that jumped out to me when we were looking at all the data at the end, because we did PERMA at the beginning, we did PERMA at the three month point, and then at the six month point, we compared the data across. And PERMA gives us a lot of data. It looks at yeah. how people see themselves, how they see the team, how they see the organization. And it really gives us an opportunity to dig in and begin to understand what some of the issues are. But there's also a separate question that's not directly part of PERMA, but 
It's a separate question that made me go, oh, wow. <laughs> and that is, um, do you see yourself as being high thriving or low thriving right now? And I'm not talking about this high thrive. I'm talking about the other high, high thrive. Um, you know, at the <laughs> beginning, 62% said that they were thriving. They were high thriving. They would describe themselves as high thriving, which is great because the world average right now, according to Michelle McQuaid's group, is 50%. So they were at 62%. But at the end of the six months, they went up to 86.7%. That's a huge improvement in how they would describe themselves as far as thriving, that now they went from being low thriving to being high thriving with an increase of, I don't know, 22 some percent. That was cool. That was a lot. That made me, yeah. that just yeah. brought joy to my heart. Hmm. Now I wanted to say, are there any other specific program factors that we want to bring forward that would help a nonprofit leader, or a leader of an impact driven organization, you know, be able to use. And then, and then after that, Sarah, I'd love to bring in uh, some of the, like, this wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for sure, right? There were some people who were like, basically, I hated it, right? And so I want to speak to that because that's important, right? I want to have integrity into the data. We had, we did a, a good solid survey at the very end beyond PERMA and that's real, right? That's what the data is. And I want to make sure we're speaking to that because that was in there. Yeah. Um, but before we do that, uh, Dana, are there any other program or Sarah, even as you heard us, I know you weren't in any of the workshops, but you definitely were a part of some of the design or overheard us thinking about it. Are there any other factors that would be really helpful for people to understand around ways that they can really uh, help their team? Yeah, to improve I, in well-being that I'll we, just tell you that um, I'm an avid mountain bike rider and I have learned the hard way that you go where you look. I've hit trees. Mm. I've launched myself off a cliff on my bike and fortunately snagged into a tree that was sticking, or a little shrubbery that was sticking out so I didn't go a couple hundred feet down to the bottom. Um, you go where you look. And so the questions that we ask are really important. Um, if, if we're just going to stay focused on what are we going to do about burnout, and one of the things that I've seen happen is you do the Maslach burnout inventory or some sort of an inventory to figure out how badly your people are burned out. You get the results back. They want to know what the results are. And when you have to tell them that 60% of the people are burned out that work here, then everybody goes, oh my gosh, such so toxic here. You know, it's like, and then the burnout gets worse because now they're thinking that they're working in a toxic environment. They're starting to look at where else they might want to do, or maybe they just want to become an Amazon truck driver. I don't know. So I'm, I'm, always asking myself when I'm thinking about working with organizations, what's the better question? And, and instead of saying, what are we going to do about this burnout issue? I'm actually, the, the, it's a better voice. What are we going to do about burnout? <laughs> <laughs> I'd, rather, I'd rather ask, how do we create a life-giving culture in our organization? Because that's a generative question that makes people's eyebrows go up and they're like, Oh, yeah, man, I want to be part of that. You want to be out on the burnout committee? Yeah. No. We're going to be on the thriving <laughs> committee? Yeah, do you have shirts? This is going to be fun. You know, it's like, so I think the questions that we ask are, are important. And that's something that you can do as a nonprofit leader right now is to say, what are the questions that I'm asking and how do I ask questions about where we want to go? It's not that we ignore yeah. burnout. I have a passion for doing something about it. 
and I want to sit with people and say, what is this burnout thing? What's it costing you? Um, why do you think it's happening? Why is it important for us to solve this? And then transition to, so where do you want to go a year from now? What do you want to be celebrating? It's not the lack of burnout. It's mm -hmm. how a year from now, how do we have a vibrant, life-giving culture where we are all healthy and well and leaning in and, and changing the world? That's great, Dan. Yeah, really great point. Don't be, don't create a burnout committee. Please. <laughs> it's not the absence of, it's the presence of something that we're working yeah, towards. For sure. Yeah. I yeah. mean, interestingly, we had a workshop yesterday with a nonprofit we're working with and, you know, talked about the reframing power of questions. And uh, one person said, you know what? Like, we have all been thinking about that we're on a sinking ship, that we've been on a sinking ship and that we're on a sinking ship. And like, staying stuck oh, no. in that mindset of I'm on a sinking ship, like causes the ship to sink and sink faster. Yeah, it makes the people weigh and more so of, the boat sinks faster. Yes, instead of <laughs> focusing on the sinking ship, like let's focus on the horizon or where we're going. And so, I mean, we literally saw this happen yesterday. It's so powerful yes. when people shift their that mindset. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, Dan, Sarah, thank you for bringing that in. Cause that's the whole predisposition to this work anyway, but there's going to be some people who aren't even going to like it, right? There's going to be some people who are like, you know, like, I think there was one sentiment that said, make this completely voluntary, uh, in the survey data. Yeah. Now I didn't know if this was like, you know, they, a, a mandatory thing that everybody had to be at, or if it was like strongly recommended, uh, that's something, uh, that's a curious question, but Sarah, what, what was some of the data suggesting? There was a lot of positive data, for sure, yeah. that this definitely helped people, that there were pieces. But this is not always for everybody. No, no. The reality I mean, is some people are in different places. So tell me, Sarah, I'm curious, as you looked at the data from your perspective, and having not been in any of the workshops, uh, I think it's an interesting and advantageous position of what was what is it really saying for those who are, who are struggling, maybe? Yeah, I mean, all, all, you know, the data essentially says that there were between eight and 11% of folks on any given question that didn't love it, that disagreed that the workshops were engaging, but that means about 90% thought they were, right? So um, sure. we have 10% of folks, and it's a relatively small sample size, that didn't love this and didn't get a ton of value out of it. But I, I think one of the things we saw, though, looking across their responses was that these were folks that may not have been in the best spot in general, right? Um, and so we asked them about whether their organization supported, um, generally they felt like their organization was uh, cared about their well-being, right? And some of these folks said no. And so I, I, th I think these are folks who may be further down on that burnout scale, um, who struggles potentially to find the time and resources to make this happen and didn't think it was worth it. And so, yes, some people... Again, about 10%, 8 10% didn't love it um, and um, maybe didn't think it was worth their time or effort. And then I think this piece around it being voluntary is really important. But 90% did. And one of my favorite qualitative um, pieces here was somebody wrote, I think our team was already pretty high functioning, but I think this program would be even more helpful for larger clinics where people get lost in the shuffle. Um, and so, you know, and then somebody said, I hope we can do this regularly because it was something I really enjoyed. 
Um, and so, and then a few people wrote about totally other things like staffing. And this is where we get into those other four pieces of PERMA, the PERMA plus four, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Because we weren't there to solve the staffing issue. We weren't there to solve a pay issue, right? That wasn't our job, but that still affects people. And if you're somebody that's particularly struggling, maybe with a pay issue or a job fit issue or something like that, this may not have helped improve those. It wouldn't because that wasn't the intent. So I think we just have to be clear about what our goal was, which was overall improving individual well-being. And um, our PERMA results at the individual level showed that we did that. So, you know, in general, I think the data is positive and there are a few folks who didn't love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for bringing in that perspective because I, 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 and I appreciate Sarah, how much you strive to um, make sure that there is integrity to how we're speaking Mm -hmm. to the data. And I've been learning a lot around how do we make sure and be transparent around what, what is the data really saying? You know, yes. let's look at the data objectively. What is it saying? And, uh, and that's why I'm, I'm grateful for your voice in a lot of this work because you have that perspective and are able to bring that forward. Um, I'm also thinking about these people, you know, there's one angle that you could look at this and say, well, they were already disgruntled or they were already frustrated, but I'm also like, I wonder what would be an approach if I'm a nonprofit leader and maybe I even did a survey like this and I did some well-being work and then I realized that, you know, some people didn't like it. What just to, just to throw out the idea, what would be a tactical way that a leader can approach somebody who may be the quote unquote naysayer or may be the uh, the cynic of these this type of work or may have gone through this work and were like, that was dumb. I hate it. How would you suggest, I'm curious, uh, this is a little rapid fire curiosity, uh, approaching people who might have been those people who filled out that survey that way? Yeah, well, I just, I mean, I think one quick thing is um, this is just the importance of stay, stay interviews, not exit interviews, but stay interviews with folks across the board. This is an anonymous survey, so we're never going to know who said that. And in many cases, folks aren't going to be transparent in in surveys that aren't anonymous. But that only um, supports the real importance of stay of annual or every six months stay conversations because unless you do that, you have no idea where folks are at and what they need to remain in their seats. And so that is one thing I always recommend to folks. You're going to learn so much through those conversations. I think there's That's something great. that we could have done better. And that is mm-hmm. when we were early on starting this project, we could have done a better job enrolling. And next time we will yeah. in, in talking about why does this matter? Um, and, and to acknowledge some of you, your biggest concern is staffing. And staffing is directly related to what we're going to do, because if your staff isn't connected, isn't thriving, they're not going to stay. So if you want to have more staff and you want to have your staff stick around, lean in. We need you to be part of this. We didn't set that up. So I think the mm. people that show up that are like, this stuff's stupid. Dude. All I care about is I need staff. And I don't want to spend time. I don't want to spend any effort on this. This is dumb. It's not about well-being. It's about staffing. And we could have enrolled those people to say, this is all about staffing. Yeah, that's good. Lesson, yeah. lesson learned. Always learning that's as a facilitator, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. 
And also too, I was thinking, how do, how might we look at, um, I think about our, our list of behaviors that reinforce learning and, uh, including all voices and particularly those who might be dissenting mm -hmm. voices. We actually did a podcast on this quite a few months ago around inviting the dissenting voices and, uh, and, and just making sure to invite those voices. And as, uh, somebody said that behind every cynic uh, or every critic is an unrealized hope and what might be underneath there, uh, what might be underneath there and exploring that and looking at them from an appreciative lens and an understanding that they're human with a need and how might we understand what that need might be that's not being met right now. So that's what I was kind of thinking about when I was asking the question mm -hmm. too. So, well, Hey, both of you, thank you for the time. This was, uh, I feel like this is a really rich conversation about well-being. It's really important. It's a big deal. And I'm glad we hit on some of the data, uh, around why well-being matters. I encourage all of you to think about what it's costing you for not looking into this. Um, we'll put some things in the show notes for you to be able to click on and take a look at a little bit more about, uh, some of the, the data that Sarah shared and Dan shared as well. And, uh, but other than that, I just invite you all to keep on thriving, find ways to thrive so that you can have impact and really the impact that you're setting out to have and the impact that your community needs from you. That's why thriving is so important. So thanks everybody, Sarah, Dan, wonderful to be with I you. Thrive, thanks buddy. for being on the show. Here. I thrive. <laughs>